As Pastor David said, we are doing this We Believe series on kind of central tenets of our faith and, and what we hold to be true of those things and what we believe about them. And so today's topic is the forgiveness of sins, kind of a, a, a big topic, one that is sort of very at the core of who we are as Christians. And, and as I started to think about this idea, um, something that came to mind actually pretty early for me was a conversation I had when I first became a Christian. I became a Christian when I was 21 years old, and uh, at the time of becoming a Christian, most of my friends were non-Christians, and so I was probably a Christian of all of about two weeks, and was talking to my friend about sort of things I was learning, uh, including this idea of the forgiveness of sins. And so what I was telling my friends, which honestly I was probably more parroting than truly understanding all of this, was saying, well, well what's true is, by professing faith in Jesus, my sins are for- forgiven, And that because my sins are forgiven, there is a way for my salvation. Which I understood at the time was primarily through the lens of when I die, I get to go to heaven. And my friend didn't really have much more knowledge than that either. So we were kind of like blindly guiding each other in this conversation where I guess I was the one who was providing the information, but really I didn't have that much. And my friend was an engineer. I'm an engineer as well. So he asked a very logical question. And he said, okay, well, if I understand what you're saying... Jesus acts as kind of a reset button, that for whatever sins you've committed, Jesus resets those things so those sins are no longer with you, and and so now you can be saved. And so then he was like, well, so if that's true, if if Jesus is this reset button, then what is, why why wouldn't I, for the next, let's say, few decades, just live the way that I want to live, do exactly what I was doing, sort of make, make all my own choices, make no changes to my life, and then when I'm older, and mind you, we were like young 20s, so like, we're going to live forever. So like, w- when we get older, then when, maybe when we're closer to an age where we think we might die, then I'll profess my faith in Jesus, and I still get to have salvation, and I still get to go to heaven, best of both worlds, do what I want, but eventually be saved. And I think if somebody asked me that question today, now years of being a Christian, there are different ways I would engage that person, different things I would ask that person to consider. But I will tell you that at two weeks of being a Christian, this question broke my brain. <laughs> I, I tried to keep a poker face, but I was like, uh, dang, I don't know. I think you're right. <laughs> I, don't, I, don't, I don't know. I don't know. That sounds right to me. And, and I think what that points to is limitations of sin, the, our understanding of sin and the forgiveness of sin, if we place it purely on sort of this moral ethical framework. If it is purely about sort of thinking of sin as debits in our life, debits that count against us, and that, that Jesus acts as the credits that, that return us to a, a place of, of good, that if we understand it only this way, that it, it becomes this thing that is almost transactional. It, it, it's almost capitalistic to think of sin this way, that, that it is about debits and credits. And so all have failed and have fallen short and have sinned so that we are in the red. But thanks be to God for Jesus, who returns us to the black, so that we may pay dividends and earn profits for the glory of God. And of, co- of course, this is silly. This doesn't make any sense. And, and, and so I, I think it, it places this limitation in this idea of, of this is what sin and the forgiveness of sins is all about. I think the challenge of that is that it makes it seem like the forgiveness of sins is purely provisional. It's a law or a rule that we just have to find a way to make okay. And it's temporary. It's transactional. And that these things feel 
well, I'll say this. Even if it was just that, God would be worthy of, of, of our worship and glory. That, that those things are needed. That there is real truth in Scripture found in, in the ideas of that. But it, it feels empty. If that's all it is, then what does that mean for the way that you and I live right now, here, today? If it's just about later, then, then my friend's question makes sense. And so how can we understand something more about that? And, and my friend didn't ask this question, but I think behind his question, if, I, if I, I'm just a little bit sort of me going off, but if I think behind his question is like, is that it? Is this all this is? Because if that's all that is, then I should treat it as a provision. I should treat it as a provision that I can use to my will however I want if that's, if that's all this is about. And for us, is that all we should expect? Is that, is that all this means? Or is there more that God has for us? Is, is there something better? Is there a better way that we can understand this? And so, so we will look to Scripture today to, to dig deeper into that idea. And so we're going to be going into the book of Hebrews. And so Hebrews is a book, just to kind of catch us up on sort of understanding of, of where we're going, is that Hebrews is a book um, that was written, we believe, to Jewish Christians who were likely living in Jerusalem. So these were former, former members of the Jewish-Israelite community who had become Christians, and, and they were facing persecution. And in the face of persecution, they were considering, they were sort of working out, well, perhaps we should let go of, of this faith that we have in Jesus, and we should just go back to the old way. We should go back to the rule of law. We should go back to Judaism. Then we could avoid persecution. And what the author is exhorting these Christians to do is to persevere in their faith. And the central argument that is worked out through all of Hebrews to, of, of why that is so is to say that Jesus is the mediator between God and humanity. It is only Jesus that can, that can do that. And this argument reaches kind of a, a high point in the central part of Hebrews in chapter 9 where we'll be looking. So we're going to be going into Hebrews chapter 9, verses 11 through 14. And what we see here is that the author affirms that the forgiveness of sins is achieved completely through Jesus' sacrifice. As is our tradition here, if, if you wouldn't mind standing, if you are able, for the reading of God's word. Hebrews chapter 9, verses 11 through 14. But when Christ came as a high priest of the good things that are now already here, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not made with human hands. That is to say, is not a part of this creation. He did not enter by means of the blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood, thus obtaining eternal redemption. The blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who are ceremonially unclean sanctify them so that they are outwardly clean. How much more than will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God? This is the word of the Lord. So I think this sort of transactional, um, you know, what I was describing earlier, this sort of transactional understanding of the forgiveness of sins, this sort of temporary, provisional way that we, we can, this framework that we can understand the forgiveness of sins, it, it is probably in our culture the primary way that sort of the idea of the forgiveness of sins is understood. But even outside of, like, outside of the church and sort of like general culture, I would say that there is a risk of, of us falling into the trap of, of this understanding. That maybe not like sort of our cognitive understanding, maybe not the way that we would profess to say this is how we understand faith, 
but in the way that we work that out in our day-to-day, the way that we understand our relationship with Jesus, that it can be very, very easy, and I will speak for myself, it can be so easy to fall into the trap of like, oh, if I'm doing the quote-unquote right things, if I am reading my Bible more often, if I'm praying more often, if I'm serving in a bunch of places, that is what opens up more access to me for God. That is, it is somehow dependent on, on sort of the, the way that I can experience the fullness of what God has for me is because it, it's dependent on my efforts to do all those things well. And that, that is what turns God's favor toward me. It's, it's, it's what allows for more relationship. And, and it's subtle. There, there, there are some elements of that, that, that there is those disciplines that we have are, are what allow for sort of increasing relationship and knowing God, but it is not dependent for our access to it. On the counter of that is like if I find myself sinning, if I find myself in patterns of sin, if I find myself kind of the thing that I don't want to do but I keep doing it, well, somehow God turns away from me. Access is closed. I'm further from God, and I, and I don't have a clear way back. Inherent to this idea that, that I, I, you know, years and years of being a Christian, I can still fall in, it, it, at the heart of that is this idea that, that our, the forgiveness of sins and how that relates to relationship with God is still transactional. That is still temporary. It's provisional. There's a fragility to it that depends on our own efforts. And yet this is not what God has for us. And instead what we see in this passage that we will dig deeper into is that it is through Jesus' sacrifice alone that we are gaining access to God. That the fullness of what God has for us and the way that God wants to work it out and the ways that we get to experience it depend not on our efforts. Our efforts are ineffective and futile and add nothing because it is Jesus and Jesus' sacrifice alone that allows for our ability to have relationship with him, for us to be saved, for our sins to be forgiven. So what I have for us today is this. Embrace life forgiven of sins by clinging to Jesus' sacrifice. Embrace a life forgiven of sins by clinging to Jesus' sacrifice. In this passage, what we see are are sort of two movements that are, are in, compared and contrasted of, of, of sort of how, how we might try to work that out. The first movement is the movement of, of our own efforts. And, and what that points to is the futility of that and how that can never lead to our redemption, the forgiveness of our sins. And then that is compared to the complete effectiveness of Jesus' sacrifice and how that completely accomplishes that. So we'll, we'll look at each of those two things in comparison. So first, we'll start with our efforts to bring about the forgiveness of our sins are futile. Before we can dive into sort of this topic more fully and the idea of forgiveness of sins, I I, I think we need to spend a little bit of time talking about the idea of sin. That sin is a a big topic, and I, I looked back, I was like, in the Apostles' Creed, did somebody already cover sin? Do I need to do it? And I'm like, oh, nope, I don't think anyone did. So I, I think I have to try to within, because, I mean, we could preach about sin for, like, months. Like, we, we could have a whole series on just sin. I'm going to try and just sort of give us an initial framework only for the purpose of giving us a common understanding so that as we start to dive into what the forgiveness of sins mean, that we, we're all kind of talking about the same thing. I, I think the... It forces us to deal with the problem of sin and what that means within sort of the grander story of who God is and how God wants to relate to us. So this is like, you know, the, the whole, whole enchilada of our whole faith, but like let's try and do it in as succinctly as possible. Something that I found helpful about sort of a way to understand that is something that um, I saw Pastor Rich Velotis, uh post on social media. 
his proposal, his framework for this is a understanding of sort of all of what scripture is and, and understanding and, and within that an understanding of who God is and how God wants to relate to us and the story of God and us. And, and so what he proposed um, and the framework that I'm going to use as our base is that the story of scripture is four phases repeated through all of its pages. And, and those four phases are, I love you. I am with you. Don't be afraid. You can come home. I love you. I am with you. Don't be afraid. You can come home. That contained in these four phases are the way that God is working out God's desires for us. That this is the, the truth of what God intended for us. That this is the way that God wants us to live out what our experience will be now and forevermore for all of eternity. And that hopefully you see within those phrases an a invitation to a real intimacy, an authentic relationship with God, a fullness of experience where we get to experience and receive the fullness of God, of knowing God and being known by God, of loving God and being loved by God. That this is the central thrust, the central theme of God's story with us and who God is and what God desires for us. That, that is good news. Now, within that story, then, is the problem of sin. That we, we start by saying that it's truly God's desire for us. Full stop. That is what God wants for us. But that sin can create a problem in, in the working out of that. And, and so we'll define sin in this way. We'll say, sin is that which is outside of God's will. So we just talked about what we just said is, is God's will for us. Outside of God's will is where sin comes in. And so this is any place where you or I might make choices, might do something that is outside of God's very good intentions for us. The places where we decide to become our own, our own God. And not that you would ever, like, say, uh, maybe you, hopefully none of us are saying that, but, like, not that you would say it exactly that way, but that where you make choices to say, all right, I think I know what's best for me. A lot of times I think that's out of our own hurt and brokenness that we say, okay, I'm, I'm going to go after this. I'm going to make this choice where, where it is, it, you are no longer seeking to be in alignment with God, that you're just seeking to go after sort of your own way of working it out. And with that, because we are human and that we are broken, hurt people, that, that sin is born out of that, that desire to do our own will that falls outside of God's will. And so where the problem of that comes in is that God, God's self, is holy. God is completely set apart. God is without blemish. God is without sin. God is perfect. God is obviously completely in line with God's will of the goodness, the mercy, the grace of, that is true of God. And yet God desires for us to be an intimate, true, authentic relationship, that we actually get to be in union with the living God. That God inhabits us and that we, we share in God and God shares in us and that there is a, a real, essential union that we are invited into. But then when we see where the problem starts to rise, that if God is pure and holy and without blemish and that we carry sin that sits outside of God's will, those things cannot be in union. 
That that which is in, with union with God must be consistent with the character and nature of who God is. And so we need a way to deal with the sin in our lives. The sin, individual sin, collective sin, original sin of just humanity. Something needs to be done so that we can achieve God's very good will for us that is at the center of everything we're talking about. The, the truth of, I love you, I am with you, don't be afraid, you can come home. That God sets that out as the vision for what we do, and then God makes a way for that to be true. And within the first covenant the, that we see in the Old Testament, God does make a way in part for those things to be true. And the way that God does that is through ritual purity. As members of the Israelite community, as they commit sin, that sin could no longer be part of the chosen people of God. And so those people needed a way to be restored so that they could return to their community and that they could return to worshiping God. And so the, the way that God provides that is through the law and specifically through these laws around ritual purity, which involve a blood sacrifice of animals that we see in verses, um, I think it was 12 and 13, of the way that blood sacrifice will allow for ritual purity to be restored. And so in, in this way, we see the themes being worked out in part of what we've talked about of God's will for us. That within even that framework, that there is an invitation to restoration. There is a chance for redemption. There's an invitation to sit in the presence of God, although in part, but still there. There is a, a promise of the covenant that exists, a, a way to make your way back to God that God has provided. But it is only in part that there are limitations to the way that this has worked out. First, in the, in the way that sort of ex, the experience of God is in itself. So in the tabernacle that's described here, which is like a tent or a shelter, that this is, you know, by definition, made of human creation. This is made of physical created things. And because of that, it is subject to death and decay, that there is a partial experience of the experience of being with God, and it, but it exists within a structure that is, is, is not eternal, that does not represent the fullness of, of what we see represented in, in what God has for us. And maybe even more meaningfully, that, that, that this is um, a temporary way to make our way back to God, that this is still provisional. There's still sort of, it's satisfying a part of the law, but it is a satisfaction that needs to be repeated, that every year during the Day of Atonement there, was, there would be more sacrifices so that you're still stuck in this sort of system of this cycle of, of I've committed sin and I've, I've become impure and I, I need to make amends for that. And so there is this pattern, this cycle that's sort of on repeat. And because of that, it is temporary, that there's a provision that, that's in part, but it's, it's never the full whole. It does not affect sort of true redemption. And because that is true, that any effort to get to true redemption, any, any effort to reach for what we heard described, a, a true and authentic and intimate relationship with God, where I can be fully known by God and God fully knows me, that any effort to do that within the system is toilsome. It is futile. You can, you can make your way partway there, but you never quite get all the way there. That every effort never quite closes the gap. There's no way to make full amends. What's described here is sort of it allows for ritual purity, but not a cleansing of the conscience. That the, what I can, you know, speak to and I, you may have experience in is, is in sin where there can be guilt and shame and disqualification and, and self-condemnation. That these things, there's, there's not a solution from these created things, this temporary way, this, this provisional way, this transactional way of dealing with our sins. Within that system, then, is, is, is just like, I think some things that can be trappings for us. First is the idea that, that 
we are up against forces that are bigger than us. That if I have to keep making provisions, keep making ways, that I'm trying to find some way back, but it's never quite there, that I'm not really free. That the thing that I'm trying to defeat is bigger than me. And in that way, that the word of sin and the way that sin leads to death, that that curse is still upon you. That you are held captive to the power of that. And that even any effort to try to battle that depends on your own efforts. It depends on, well, the reason that we need to make this provision is because you sinned. So we need to make a way for that to come back. So if you could, implied in that is if you could just try harder. If you could just do a little less of the bad things. Th- that we would need less of this provision. Maybe you'd get a little closer. Maybe you get a little bit more of the good stuff of God. You, you want these things, but you, you can't quite get there. This is the temptation. It is, it is enticing for us, I, I, I'll speak for me, but maybe for all of us, to fall into this trap. I think because it's like that's how every other relationship or thing works in our life. It is mind-bending to imagine what God is actually saying here about it being fully in grace and mercy. We are much more used to, well, whatever's going to happen, whatever good thing that's coming to my life, whatever thing I'm trying to gain is because it is, at least in some way, because of my effort. It is in some way because I am trying, because I tried more, so then more of the good stuff came. Or I, I didn't try hard enough, and so less of the good thing came escaping that, that spiral is near impossible for any one of us to do. Because every single thing in this world is telling you that that is how it works. And so I, I invite all of us here today, and, and for any of us online, to think about where is a place where you are toiling? And I say that not in condemnation, with no sense of shame or guilt, but rather as an invitation. As an invitation to say, and we'll get into sort of the good news of part two, Jesus coming along, that that is no longer needed. That your toiling adds nothing to your redemption. Your toiling adds nothing to the forgiveness of your sins. Your toiling adds nothing to your ability to access all of the good things that God has for you and is waiting for you and that he wishes to freely give you. They are ineffective, they are futile, and they only lead to an experience of pointing us back to the old way, which is, more, which is death. So where is the place where you might be toiling? And maybe I do want to speak to some of you who may be here today that maybe you find yourself in a place where you feel the weight of sin in your life. And again, this is without judgment. This is, this is all in an invitation that I see presented here in Scripture. That perhaps you find yourself in patterns of things that you want to stop doing, but you find yourself keep doing. Or things that you mean to do, but that you, you find, you're finding it difficult to find traction in, in how you can do them. Or maybe you don't directly attach it to sin, but you feel just apart from God in some way. You feel unseen. You feel far apart. You're not sure how to make your way back. If this is you, we're going to get into sort of more of what I think God has for you. I just want to sort of in gentleness and compassion name that even where you are right now, that I honor the courage it takes for you to come here. That in that, you are showing faith. Faith that God honors. And to say that all the promises of what is true here is however however far apart you might feel from them, that it is true. God sees you. God knows you. God loves you. And God is inviting a way for you to know more of him.
this is the result of, of toiling under our own effort. It doesn't truly accomplish what we are looking to do. But thanks be to God that God has made a better way. So in comparison to our own efforts, which lead to futility for forgiveness of sins, what we see in comparison is Jesus' sacrifice. And what Jesus' sacrifice offers is complete redemption. Complete. Does not need to be added to. Done deal. It is final. It is done. It is finished. It is secure in heaven forevermore for you and for me. Because what we see pointed to from the Old Covenant and even what we talked about a bit here is that something of a different order is needed. That in the futility that we talked about, in the ways that that's never quite accomplishing sort of the, our redemption, the forgiveness of our sins, that, that all right, well, we, we can't do it. So, so we need something else. We need something that needs to be completely different, that, that doesn't resemble the old way, that is of a, of a completely different nature in order to really resolve sort of God's goodwill for us, God's intentions for us. So we see the descriptions of that in this passage. Just in these four verses, we see the differences of what is true of Jesus' sacrifice. That rather than the tabernacle of human crafting, what we are now invited into is the tabernacle of the heavenly realm. We are invited into the place where God fully dwells. The place where God is present is now accessible to us. In verse 11, we see that what is stated and affirmed is that what God has made is superior to what is true of creation. That this tabernacle is unending, never ceasing, resistant to any sense of decay or death. The place where God is fully God, and we get to enter into that place to fully know God in a way that is impossible through our own striving. And within that is, is this idea that's presented in the, the Old Covenant in the ways that we might try and toil and, and put up for our own efforts, where we are reaching forward, where we are reaching forward to try to grasp the, the good things of God, that in any way that that sounds attractive to us, that we want that for our lives, that, that we reach for it but never are able to quite grasp. But instead, what God has done is from the hand of God reached back to us to hold our hand and pull us there. We would never, ever have gotten there if it was only our reaching. But rather than our reaching, a hand has reached back to us to pull us to redemption. And it is only Christ who can do this. Only Christ. We see that affirmed in verse 11, that it is Christ who is our high priest. And that it could only be Jesus to accomplish all that we see here. That it is uniquely Jesus who is called by God for this role. It is uniquely Jesus who is qualified by his suffering and his exaltation who sits in heaven. And that we can trust that we have a high priest forever by virtue of Jesus' indestructible life. That it is only Jesus who could truly defeat death and the curse of death. What we see is that Christ's death is the definitive way that sin is dealt with. That nothing needs to be added. No other conditions are made. The provisions are gone. The temporary is gone. The transactional is gone. Jesus has done it. It is final and complete. And as stated here, it was once for all. And in the place where you imagine that I need to toil, I, there's this thing I'm, I still haven't quite got right. There's this thing I'm struggling with. There's this thing I need to do more of. All of that is unnecessary when it comes to our redemption and our salvation. 
Jesus has done it. And because of that, what was true before that we were unable to free ourselves from, that the final word over our lives was one of sin and death, and that we had no way to fundamentally change that. What that word has been replaced with is the final word is Jesus' sacrifice. So that the mark on us, the song sung over us, the banner that is lifted above us is that of Jesus' sacrifice. The power of death and decay have been rendered mute. Rather, what has been replaced with is the power that echoes in the halls of heaven for all of eternity, which speaks of Jesus' grace and mercy. This is the song over your life now. Not because of anything you have done or ever could do, but because of what Jesus has done. It is forever and ever the word that stands over us that death is powerless to make a claim against. And the freedom that that we were striving for and desiring, the true freedom of, of captivity, is forevermore unleashed without question and without going back. And we can tap into that power by proclaiming in faith what Jesus has done. And that every time we do so, we tap into the freedom that God has granted us. And that you are truly now free, as am I, by professing faith in Jesus. And I think important to note in that, it does not mean we become sinless. Which, by the way, is good news. Because if, I know for me, I'll probably get five minutes out of here before I, in thought or action, have done something that is outside of God's will. And I'm not making excuses for that. It's just the reality of my, my sort of experience of life is that, that that just, that happens. But that's not what we're talking about. Nor am I saying that that's not important. God wants to continue to work out sin in our lives and, and give us more experiences of freedom. But that's not central to what we're talking about. We're not talking about an experience where we live a sinless life. Rather, what has been secured is our redemption in Christ. It is not that we are without sin forevermore, but it is that the source of our salvation is eternally valid. There is nothing you can do or undo that will change that because it does not depend on us. It does not depend on the tabernacle that we've created. It depends on the heavenly tabernacle that Jesus has fulfilled. And what that means for you and I is that we can enter into the sanctuary that does not decay. We can sing songs of worship that are never-ending. And we enter into a relationship with God whose grace and mercy is everlasting. This is the promise of our redemption, of our forgiveness of sins that is offered to us in Jesus' sacrifice. So that we may embrace a life forgiven of sins, by clinging to Jesus' sacrifice. As I was preparing for this sermon, I did feel like that God was pointing me towards a, a bit of what I was talking about earlier. That, that there may be those of you here today who are um, either sort of toiling under the weight of sin, and, and you just feel the burden of that. Perhaps you feel shame or guilt in ways that the things that you're trying to work out that you haven't sort of quite found freedom from. Now, be that lust or greed or malice or slander, whatever thing that you might be struggling with, that that it was a struggle for you to even make your way to service today, and you you feel detached. It's easy for you to say, yeah, I get how this grace and mercy might be for the people, my brother and my sister to my left and right, but it doesn't quite feel true for me. Or maybe you don't have that exact experience, but you're just somebody who I mentioned earlier, like who just feels apart from God. That for whatever reason, you feel unseen in some way by God. And you feel far apart from it. And you're, you're not sure how to make your way back. 
I felt like as I was praying and preparing for this, that this message was for you. That God is inviting you and beckoning you into relationship with him, not because of anything that you have done or could do, but because of what Jesus has done. And because that is true, that God has more of you today, even right now in this moment, for you to experience a more full version of, I love you. I am with you. Don't be afraid. Come home. So if you feel like you are in a place where where you are desiring more of that and and, um, desiring to go after that, in a bit we will have some folks um, up who will be available to pray with you. We'd love and invite you to come up to one of those people who will just lift that up to God with you. So let me pray for us as we close. Jesus, there is nothing like your grace and mercy. There is nothing like it, Lord. It's, it's hard to even wrap our minds and hearts around it, Lord. The gifts that you give us freely, that only you could do, and that you are under no obligation to do. You are creator, we are created, and yet you choose to reach to us that we might have the fullness of life that you always intended for us. We thank you, Lord. We thank you that you have made a way. Lord, for each one of us, wherever we are, Lord, would you be pouring out even right now grace and mercy into each one of us. Lord, that even where we may be scared, even where we are hurt, even where it is hard for us to trust, would you give us, Lord, just enough to accept this gift from you, to take steps towards you, Lord, that you you reach back to us to grab. Would you, Lord, give us the courage and grace to reach forward and grab your hand? We thank you, Lord, that our sins are forgiven. We thank you, Lord, that you have redeemed us. We thank you, Lord, that we can, ha- we can now live in the age where we can experience the fullness of life that you have for us. We ask, Lord, humbly and only by your grace and mercy for more and more of that. Amen.